0: Geeks, seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode ninety one: The Practice Adventures of Dr. Jeffrey Hopkins. Today we speak with Dr. Jeffrey Hopkins about his early practice adventures, exposure to Tibetan Buddhism, and his work with the Dalai Lama. Listen in to find out more about one of the earliest pioneers in Western Buddhism. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. I wonder if you would speak just a little bit about your own personal practice. Some people might know you as the academic, but you've done a Mm. lot of practice. Even in your talk today, you mentioned your studies with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, which I was really interested in. But maybe you could just talk about what you find to have been the most important parts of your practice and your history.
1: I left uh, college, it was Harvard University, after my uh, first year. And uh, inspired by material that I read during that year, especially thorough, and worked in the summer. So I had a little money. I went to the woods of Vermont, way up north in Vermont, outside of St. Johnsbury, in a small town called Concord. This is not Concord, New Hampshire, but a tiny town mm. overlooking Shadow Lake, with Mount Lafayette in the distance. And, in a sense, it was my retreat. And I had books. I did some writing. Mm. Did a lot of walking dreamt out all my bad dreams, found answers in those dreams, and realized that I had some faculty to do imaginative meditation. And well, for instance, I decided, well, since I can do this, what should I do? And, you know, you're looking down on Shadow Lake. So I thought, well, I'll I'll see God, and uh, the lake turned purple, and there was a <laughs> big throne with, a, you know, kind of bulky arms on it, and there was a, like, human shape, I believe purple robe also, it's all sort of blended together with a being who had no head, and uh, I thought, well, I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, I'm <laughs> no kidding. And soon, not too, but not too long thereafter, it was getting too cold in Vermont, and I moved to a place in Rhode Island. I come from Rhode Island, and out in the woods again. And then uh, while I was in Vermont, I read uh, Melville's Taipei, which is T-Y-P-E-E, which is an island in the Marquesas, and I think the so-called town is Nukuhiva. And I decided I would move to Nukuhiva. This is age 20. <laughs> and uh, I was also inspired by Somerset Maugham's Moon and Sixpence, which is about Gauguin. And Gauguin had gone to Tahiti. Mm. And a lot of his paintings are about especially Tahitian women. Mm. But it was Melville that inspired me. And so I had one suitcase full of books because I wanted to keep reading, Mm -hmm. another suitcase with some clothes, and uh, took a freighter out of New York Uh, as one of eight passengers. And it took 45 days to get to Tahiti Uh because it was a freighter. Right, had to stop all down the Atlantic coast, come up into the Gulf, even go up into Freeport, Texas, et cetera, Uh Louisiana, I guess New Orleans. Uh-huh. First time facing uh, segregation, you know, went into a bar to get a beer, and I was on the black side of the bar, and the, you know, bartender sort of motioning with his head. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we go through the Panama Canal, and then I it was ten days to Tahiti, and I'd go up on the so-called top deck, top deck in a freighter means a little metal around the smokestack (laughs) and go lie down on on the metal on the windward side of the smokestack so I didn't get smoke Mm -hmm. and uh, stare at the sky. And a beautiful Pacific Ocean, you know, otherwise looking at, very, very blue. Mm -hmm. And at that time, very, very calm. Truly Pacific. And staring at the sky. And I began a sky meditation on that freighter. Mm. Day after day, going ten days, so it was a ten day retreat doing sky meditation. I I hadn't learned that anywhere. Mm. I just did it. Mm. And getting to Tahiti, uh, they didn't discover right away that I didn't have a visa. Uh, nobody told me I needed a visa. Oh, <laughs> it's French French Polynesia, uh-huh. and I was going to take a cocoa boat, you know, boat that carries coconut. <laughs> around, Uh and go up north to the uh, Marquesas, to Uh Nucuaiva, where there was only one jeep on the entire island. You can see the romantic. Yeah, yeah. But actually, I found Tahiti, in its astounding beauty, boring. It was like looking into a kaleidoscope all day long. Uh, And the police eventually found out that I, I don't know, somehow, that I didn't have a visa. And you know you get. I decided I wouldn't go back the same way, and so I I took a seaplane with. And I had only fifteen dollars left after that. A seaplane across the Pacific. Gee, you feel as if you're 150 feet off the water. I don't know how high mm. we were. It was a very heavy. <laughs> boat, I could say. Yeah. And uh, we we're supposed to go to Western Samoa. And couldn't land, so went on to Fiji. And eventually, you know, long story, all sorts of episodes. Got back to school. But then between my junior and senior years, I used to work all the time during the school year. And then that way I had some money during the summer. And I went up to a lake in southern Quebec in North Hadley. Out on like lake, a couple miles out on a lake. And um, I used to hike up the top of a very steep, hill and then did sky meditation again mm. half the summer and the other half went out to oklahoma a friends family had a little cabin on what they called the river and there was a spot where i did sky meditation again mm. and by the time i came back to the east coast it was as if i'd come out of a coffin because i noticed there was sky on the east coast Of course, this (laughs) guy in the East Coast. But, Mm. you know, I'd come out of a coffin and uh, continued that in my senior year uh, and then adapted and did a different version of it in my room. I got some grain bags from where my brother was working on a farm in Connecticut, and I sewed them together. And that became the rug in the room. (laughs) There's a bay window looking out on ugly north Cambridge. Well, that northern out the north side in Cambridge. And I covered it with plywood. And I put bags over the shuttered windows, but in such a way that fresh air could come in.
0: Ah,
1: Now, in Buddhism, in Tibetan Buddhism, there's a very famous dark retreat. Right, yeah. Well, I'd never read anything about a dark retreat, but uh, from what I can see, I followed some of the recipe. And I used to uh, meditate, sometimes all night long, most of the time just lying down, but I wouldn't move at all, which gets very painful. And this is all before you have
0: ever had uh, instructions? Right. Yeah.
1: Okay. And it's very painful, but then the pain goes away. And then all sorts of things happen inside Uh the black room. So if you ask me when I started meditating, that's when I started. And in time, I have to say I was a little crazy. And one of my friends had sympathy for me. And he had heard that there were Tibetans and Mongolians teaching Tibetan Buddhism Mm. in New Jersey uh, and suggested that we take a trip down there. And in the first trip, I found it all to be extremely silly. And frankly, I don't know why I went back the second time. And the second time, I was challenged to do compassion meditation. Seven-step process doing a lot of imagination of people you have known. And um, I've been hooked ever since. Wonderful. That's so interesting. What Have
0: you thought about what all that meant that you did all those practices that very similar to what's taught in the Tibetan Buddhas, a, a tradition. Did you think anything of that in retrospect?
1: Or, oh yeah, yeah. And in time, by doing these compassion meditations and going back in my life, even through classrooms, mm-hmm. I opened up memories of those classrooms, those people. Got over some of my problems, uh, with the people because we carry these problems with us. Mm-hmm. And that opened up memories also of when I was very young. Yeah, I mean, it comes from somewhere.
0: Yeah. And uh, maybe could you say a little bit about your practice and study with His Holiness? How long were you able to be there with Him?
1: Spent five years in the in the monastery in New Jersey. Uh-huh. Spent two years in graduate school, University of Wisconsin. And in and invited a, another lama to come live out in the country in Wisconsin, and I think it was about a year and a half uh, that he really tutored me on a day-to-day basis. And then I had a Fulbright to go to India. Ah, wonderful! And on the way in Germany, spent three months with that one of that lama's students, mm. brilliant person, and then went on to India. And the head of Fulbright in India told me, don't go to Dharamsala, which is where His Holiness lives. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not easily (laughs) dissuaded from doing what I want. Uh But first I went out to Sarnath, Banaras. Uh And uh, within a few days, I was on the train on my way to to Dharamsala, where I stayed... um, For a bit more than a year and happened to arrive just a few days before he was about to give a series of lectures on the stages of the path to enlightenment, Mm. four to six hours a day for 16 days. And then maybe a month after that, I uh, met him for an audience. And when I went to his lectures, I did not go with the idea that they were going to be very good. I had had some very good teachers, and I guess uh, was and still am extremely arrogant. And uh, <laughs> I just figured somebody who's recognized by a government as the reincarnation of the last Dalai Lama uh-huh. is like, give me a break, you know. <laughs> you know, if if here the Congress was choosing the reincarnation of George Washington, uh-huh. you can imagine, All right? Yeah, the <laughs> the politics that would be involved in this. Uh-huh. First thing I noticed about him was that he spoke very loudly and very clearly, very fast. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Very easy to pay attention to him because this is in Tibetan. Yeah. Uh, because he speaks so loud, so clearly, so fast. Right. Because it's fast, you got to stay on him. Yeah. If you don't stay on him, you'll go to sleep. Even, you know, <laughs> there would be some people around who are falling asleep. And then because I was so really prejudiced against any governmentally appointed Lama, uh, it took time Mm. for me to notice that I was remembering things he said, sometimes small things. Mm. So when I first met him, I told him, I said, there were a few things you said that interested me, and I sort of caught myself thinking, that must sound very arrogant. He, <laughs> Just a few things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sixteen days, four to six hours a day. And this guy says he's found a few. Pick picked my head up and looked at him. And he was beaming. It was, what are they? <laughs> Wonderful. And I told him. And that was the start of a relationship that was always very frank, very frank. Uh, you know, on my part and on, certainly on his part, that's one of his qualities. Uh. So it made it, I guess, easy for us to get along. And Then when he had an open space, he'd call me back to his office and he asked me to translate a small book that he had written uh, called Key to the Middle Way. Well, actually, the first book was Identifying Tibetan Buddhism. Uh-huh. He asked me if I'd do the, this, and I said I would if he would answer my questions. You know, not meaning not shunt me off to mm-hmm. somebody else. He said, "Oh, sure." And so, often the case would be that I would submit some questions, and then um, you know there would be a time I'd go in and went back and forth United States, India, over the next whatever, to the point where when he came to the states in nineteen seventy nine. I became his interpreter Mm. and remained his interpreter for 10 years in countries where English was needed. Mm. But that included Singapore, Malaysia, Mm. along with the English-speaking countries because there was no one who could do it directly into Chinese in Singapore, Malaysia. Mm. Mm. It was great. It was... uh, Marvelous. And it was just the right time because he wasn't that busy. Mm -hmm. He could make time in the schedule. Right. In his schedule. Right. Now it's hard to get an hour.
0: (laughs) 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 And and I'm sure you still get to ask him questions. Yes, I still ask him questions. You catch him.
1: You have an hour. (laughs) And there may be other things I'd like to discuss, but now we're still doing books. So uh, it's the topic of the book. And it's terrific still. Terrific.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing all that. That was uh, wonderful to hear.
2: Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice.